my question is this. Um, why should you believe that Christianity... No, let me put it another way. Why should you believe what Christianity asserts to be true? Why should you believe it? The answer, and the only right answer to that question, please let it be known, is that you should believe that Christianity is true if and only if it is true. You feel me? You with me on that? What we must be as Christians ultimately is people that are interested in the truth. And I always said that it's good to be a seeker, an honest seeker, because if you're a seeker and you find the truth, you'll wind up at Christ. So, what we are interested in here, and what I am interested in, is not necessarily, what I'm ultimately interested in, is not how Christianity gives us a sense of purpose in life, although it does, and it does give me a sense of purpose. And I'm not ultimately interested in the good that Christianity has done in the world, although it has done much good. From what I understand, the university, the scientific method, and hospitals came from Christians. Ultimately, I'm not interested in the ancient historic tradition of Christianity, although it is ancient and it is historic. What I am ultimately interested in is the truth. Today, I want to start a series. We're going to put Genesis on pause for the time being. I'm going to start a series called The Logic of Christianity. The logic of Christianity. And what I'm doing in this series is not, is not um, saying, look how logical we are to be Christians. Although I believe that is true. That's not my, that's not my point. What I want to do is simply explain. I want to explain to you the, the rationality and trace the logic of the Christian worldview. Because I, I suspect that many of you have ha not had that education yet. You believe in God, you believe in Christ, the Bible is the word of God, and therefore you are in good, a good solid place. What I would like to do is come under that and give it a foundation. Clarify and strengthen it. All right, This, this kind of reasoning and thinking has been so helpful in my life. And so I hope it's helpful to you. And so that's why I, I do this again not to say, not to be proud or pompous or, um, or just saying we're the most logical of all people, although I think we are. But I just want to explain to you the logic behind why we believe what we believe. So I want to answer three questions. Why isn't that working, Gary? Give me one second. It's turned on. What's that? 
Is the clicker? Mm-hmm. How do you turn the clicker on? Gary, can you come up and fiddle with this while I talk? Sorry. No, you're good. Thank you, Gary. Um, if just if you could just get it working, maybe then. Gotcha. You can you can stand there. All right. So, three questions I want to ask you today. All right. Three questions are number one. Um, how do we know, not today, this is what the series is going to be. Number one, how do we know there is a God? All right, is it not working? Well, the lights work and see, but it's... All right, don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about I it. I use this. You know what, if you could stand there and just click it as I go through. <clears throat> Number one today is how do we know there is a God? Number two, next week... I'd like to explain to you why do we believe that we possess the truth about God. And number three, uh, why do we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God? Those are the three questions I'm interested in. How do we know there is a God? Why Why do we believe we possess the truth about God? And why do we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God? Is that working? I think so. Let me see it. Thank you, Gary. That behind you. All right, give Gary a round of applause. Thank you, Gary. It's not guaranteed to stay on. All right, it's not guaranteed to stay on. He says. All right. So, you follow me on that? Now that, if we can answer those questions and clarify them, we have Christianity, right? If we know why we believe there is a God, if we know why we possess the truth about God. And why we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, we have Christianity. So, come with me on this logical journey. What I want to do is teach this in a non-academic but rigorous way. So, I'm not going to go easy on you today, but I'm I'm not going to be overly and unnecessarily academic about it. So, let's get into it. How do we know there is a God? Number one, we know there is a God because nature and conscience testify to it. Okay? Um, Scripture tells us that the created order, the universe, communicates information about the existence and power of God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The universe is speaking to you. Nature is communicating information to you. Look up. See the beauty of a sunset. I, I love Nidia's dad, Herman. It, when he sees a sunset, he's in awe. I love that because he has what's, what John Calvin called a sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine in him. And when he sees a sunset intuitively, 
He sees the beauty of God's handiwork. When you see it go hunting, when you go hunting, um, Darren, Adam, and Todd, when you see the sun shining through the trees in the morning, there's a certain beauty to it. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's the rays coming through the trees are, are it lifts my spirit for some reason. I can't explain it, but it, it helps me appreciate the beauty of God. When you see the immensity of the universe, you should fear the power of God. One pastor said, in the distance, uh, he said he went to a camp and he learned that in the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. And if that was, if 92 million miles was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. And Christ upholds all of that by the word of his power. Now, this preacher asks, is that the kind of person you call on to be your personal assistant? <laughs> to carry out your daily needs? I don't think so. We are talking about an awful and immense being. When he speaks, universes are created. When you look at a hurricane or a volcano, see the majesty of God, his raw and immense and awful power. When you see the complexity of life, the eye, DNA and RNA, notice the intelligence of the Creator. These things testify to the existence and power and intelligence and majesty of an awful and awesome being beyond our comprehension. There is a song which we don't sing, but I do like this lyric. It says, as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the nature of your breath, or in the, uh, the nature of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. It was all made to worship. And Christ said that if these stopped worshiping, then even the rocks would cry out and worship. Now, that being said, we can see God clearly. It's not just these things are communicating these things to us, but these things are clearly perceived or we can clearly perceive God in these things that have been made. Where am I going? Romans 1. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The existence of a creator is plain and clearly perceivable in the things that have been made. Period. And to not form belief in God constitutes simply a denial of reality. It's as simple as that. What happens to people is their hearts become darkened through perpetual denial of reality. And they end up worshipping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Um, Alvin Plantinga, who is ex an extremely respected Christian philosopher, extremely respected Christian philosopher, says it rightly. He says that to not form belief in God means that a person is cognitively dysfunctional. Now I know that sounds that sounds um, polemical or cruel, but he means it seriously. He means that your minds were created to clearly perceive the Creator behind the beauty, immensity, raw power, and complexity of the universe. If you don't, if the mind doesn't perceive that, it's due to a cognitive dysfunction that itself is due to the fall. What needs to be done is the Spirit of God needs to awaken the mind. We're going to talk more about this in the Spiritual Growth Campaign, how the mind and the, the spirit and the body work together in very interesting ways. But, put that aside for now, um, if you don't ask ultimate questions about the existence of the universe and whether, that whether there is a creator, it's not the fault of the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. If you don't perceive it, it's not the fault of the heavens. They're doing their job. Um, so why do we believe there is a creator? Simply because nature and conscience testify to his existence and we perceive it in an intuitive way. So that's, if there's, a, if there's an the answer in this sermon, that's the answer. Why we believe there is a God. So I don't think you need arguments for the existence of God to believe there is a God. I believe that you perceive this in an intuitive way and you rightly do so. Um, but we do have arguments for the existence of God. And I would like to give them to you to not only show you the logic of Christianity, but to support the belief that you have formed intuitively. What I want to do is share only three. I had to limit myself to three. Um, arguments for the existence of God. Number one, I want to argue for the existence of God through the existence of the universe. 
Number two, I want to argue for his existence from the beginning of the universe. Number three, I want to argue for his existence from the design in the universe. So, I want to give you three arguments for, for the existence of God today that may help you also articulate your beliefs to somebody that is struggling with these things. I want to share with you the argument from contingency. The fact that the very universe exists requires a timeless explanation for its existence. I think this is logically unavoidable, and I'll explain why. The fact that the universe exists requires a timeless explanation for the universe's existence. Suppose you and a friend, Gary, you and a friend are walking in the woods and you're having a great hike through the woods and you come to a spot in the woods where you see a glowing translucent ball just hovering there. If your friend said to you, Gary, oh, that just exists without any explanation for its existence. It doesn't need an explanation. That, that just exists. Nothing to question about that. Would that be a reasonable thing to say? It's unique, right? It's, it, it's not nor, it, it can't just be there without, a, without any explanation. There needs to be an explanation for how or why it got there. Possibil possibly it could be a science experiment, or it could be um, it could have evolved, or it's some kind of natural phenomenon that we're not aware of, but there needs to be some explanation for how or why it got there, right? Now, say, you with me on that? Some explanation. Now say you increase the size of the ball <coughs> to the size of a car. Does that remove the need for an explanation? No. Say you increase the size of the ball to the size of the state of Texas. Does that remove the need for an explanation? No. Say you increase the size of the ball to the size of the universe and put galaxies and universes and planets within it. Would that remove the need for an explanation? No. Merely increasing the size of the ball doesn't remove the need for an explanation. There must be an explanation for why or how this thing exists. The universe, the very existence of the universe, begs for an explanation beyond itself. So, that's the first premise that I want to share with you, is that if something exists, there needs to be an explanation for its existence. Second premise to this argument is that the universe cannot be explained by an infinite series of causes. Because some uh, scientists today say, well, this universe came from baby universes that spawned uh, bigger universes. And this is just a child universe of a mother universe. And, and that's how, that, you know, there's no need to posit a creator. Um, what's the problem with that logic? The problem is that that just pushes the question back one step further. Because you could say, well, who created the mother universe? 
And then who created the thing that created the mother universe? You can't have a timeless cause in the past. You must have a ti- you you must uh, you must have a timeless cause in the past. You cannot unendlessly and go back in time through an infinite series of causes to explain the existence of something. So I'm going to do a thought experiment with you. Sarah, let's say you're making bread. And Sarah's making bread and she needs salt. And Sarah goes to Jessica to to, to borrow some salt. So Sarah says, Jessica, I'm making bread. Can I borrow your salt? And Jessica says, sure, you can borrow my salt. Let me ask my neighbor for some. And Jessica goes to her neighbor, Brooke. And Brooke says, yes, you can borrow my salt, Jessica. Let me ask my neighbor for some. And Brooke rides down, and she goes to Carrie's house and asks Carrie for some salt. And Carrie says, sure, I can give you some salt. Let me ask my neighbor for some. And then Carrie drives over to Allie, and Allie says, yeah, I can give you some salt. Let me ask my neighbor for some. Now, here's the question. If this unfortunate series of events continues, will Sarah ever get her salt? No. Because each member in the series is what's called a borrowing lender. What you need is an owning lender. If someone in the series is an owning lender, then you can get the salt. The point is this, you can't get salt through an infinite series of causes and you can't get a universe by an infinite series of causes in the past. You need to have a being that does not own its existence to something else. You need to have a being who owns his existence by a necessity of its own nature. So. A a mother universe does not explain the existence of existence. You can't have an infinite series of causes in the past. You must have a being whose existence is not contingent upon something else in order for a universe to exist. You need a self-existent, necessary cause of the universe. I believe this is, as close, uh, this is as close to proof for a creator as one could possibly get. Now, do you understand the logic and why the logic behind the question who created God is actually evidence for the existence of God? Because someone comes up to you and they say, oh yeah, well you say God created the universe, well who created God? The logic behind that question shows that God must exist because you could say, okay, well, who created the thing that created God? And who created the thing that created the thing that created God? And who created the thing that created the thing that created the thing that created God? And you could go on out into infinity and never get a universe. You need a timeless, necessary being in order to achieve the existence of a universe. It's, an, it's a logical necessity. That's the argument from contingency, and I think it is very close to proof for the existence of a creator. 
Next, I want to tell you, tell you about the cosmological argument. This is the argument that the fact that the universe had a beginning points to the existence of a creator. Do you know God's a baseball fan? Who knew that? Who knows that God's a baseball fan? Because he created it, the universe in the, the big in it. No, all right. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a very pregnant phrase because it is talking about a point where time, space, and matter came into being. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space. The earth, there's matter. Time has three dimensions, past, present, future. Space has three dimensions, height, width, and depth. And uh, matter has three parts, solid, liquid, gas. So you have a trinity of trinities in the very first sentence of the Bible. Coming into existence at a single point. Time, space, and matter came into existence at a single point. Now it's very interesting that modern cosmology has demonstrated that the universe came into existence at some point in the infinite past. Uh, in the finite past. Uh, in the late 1920s, there was a, an astronomer named Edwin Hubble who discovered a phenomenon known as the red shift. And this is, this is the idea, it's simply the observation that light from the most distant galaxies are shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. This means that the galaxies are moving away from one another as if from a central point of origin. You ever heard of the Doppler effect? Um, the Doppler effect is when there is a change in frequency of sound or light waves. And so when a, when a siren is passing by you, you know how you can hear it differently from when it comes towards you to when it passes by you? That's the Doppler effect. Um, I think that the, the frequencies are getting kind of squeezed as they move closer to you. Um, the Doppler effect applied to galaxies is, means that the galaxies moving away from you will be red and the galaxies moving towards you will be blue. So galaxies that are moving away from us are red and those galaxies are the farthest ones away. And so this shows that the galaxies in the universe are moving outward as if from a central point of origin. And it means that if you reverse the expansion of the universe back in time, what you have is the universe compressed into a single point called the singularity. At this singularity, one philosopher writes, Space and time came into existence literally out of nothing. It existed before, nothing existed before the singularity. So if the universe originated at such a singularity, we would truly have a creation ex nihilo. That is evidence that the universe had a beginning. Um, now if something exists, 
if something has a beginning, there must be a cause. We know this by observation, right? If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. This to me, and to many philosophers, is evidence for the existence of a creator. Now, the popular objection to this today is that the universe came from nothing. It just came into existence, uncaused out of nothing. First, on the one hand, that is an incoherent statement because when we say the word nothing in English, we mean not anything. We mean no space. This is something. My hand is touching something here. When we say nothing, we mean not anything. You can't have nothing producing something. Second of all, it doesn't conform to our, our uniform experience of how the world works. You always need to get something from something else. One philosopher, Dr. Craig, notes that if it is true that something can come from nothing, it is inexplicable why we don't see everything and anything come into existence all the time. Why don't we see root beer and George Washington and cars just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing? Dr. Craig asks, what is so discriminatory about nothing that it only produces universes for these scientists? <laughs> Why is it that nothing only produces universes? So, you see, the scientists are trying to get around the conclusion, the almost unavoidable conclusion that there must be some timeless cause for the universe. All right. To deny this premise, Dr. Craig says, concludes finally, is to say that it makes more sense to believe that the universe came into being uncaused out of nothing than to believe that God created the universe. And if you believe that, well, God bless you. Number three, third argument and last argument. The existence of the genetic code points to an intelligent creator. What is that picture? All right. The existence of the genetic code points to an intelligence behind it. There is a term called specified complexity. Has anyone heard of this before? Specified complexity. Gary? At irreducible complexity. I'm not, yeah, I'm not getting to irreducible. We're going to have to have you teach a, a science lesson, one of these Bible studies. Um, specified complexity is when a sequence is complex and also specified. <laughs> so, a long string of random letters is random. It's complex, but it's not specified. Now, the letter A is specified, but it's not complex, right? But a textbook is both complex and specified because it is a sequence of letters arranged in such a way that it conforms to an independently given pattern, and thereby it becomes information. So specified complexity is when you have a sequence that is complex, and specified, and therefore constitutes as information. 
Whenever you see complex specified information, it is more probable than not that it originated from intelligence. So I want you to look up at the slide I have there and try this on for size. Matt and Jill, 12, 17, 19, in the sand. Now, how did the message get there? Now, be open-minded for a minute. How did this information arise? A possible natural explanation is that there was a light rain a day earlier, and it caused slight depressions in the sand, and it coincidentally formed what we understand to be words. Um, that is not impossible. It is possible that something like that could happen. But the question that I'm asking here is not what is possible. I'm asking what is the best explanation for the existence of those letters in the sand? Not what is the every possible explanation, but what is the best explanation? I have a theory. My theory is that there were two people named Matt and Jill specifically who were in this location on 12-17-2019 and they actually wrote those things in the sand. Now you can't be perfect or positive about that, but that's my theory. Because it's complex, it's specified, and it communicates information. Now, when you think about that and apply it to DNA, um, DNA, just like words or an ordered arrangement of letters, DNA is an ordered arrangement of chemicals called nucleotides. And there are four nucleotides, A, G, T, C. I forget what those stand for. But the arrangement of these nucleotides, it is staggering. The arranging of these nucleotides determines everything about a person. It forms instructions and it assembles amino acids into proteins and machines that carry out the function in a cell. Um, it determines everything about you from your eye color to your hair color to your height and your skin color and that's why it's known as the genetic code. It is literally complex, specified, and functional information in the human body. One philosopher, Doug Gruteis, says the information strongly resembles human codes or languages. Just as letters of the alphabet of, of a written language may convey a particular message depending on their sequence, so too the sequences of nucleotides in the DNA molecule convey precise biochemical messages that direct protein synth synthesis within the cell. DNA is not analogous to language, it is language. I think that is, it is staggering to me that there is this code, this information within the human body and living organisms that dictate what it will become. Where does this come from? It is best explained by an intelligent creator of that information.
In every case, we know the causal history of information. It comes from a mind. Whether it's computers, train systems, cars, textbooks, when any time there is complex, specified information, there is an intelligence behind it. And it gets even worse for the evolutionary biologists because there is no known natural mechanism that can produce specified complexity. William Dembski says, who is a chemist, he says that um, the Darwinian search for a mechanism of random mutation coupled with natural selection is incapable of generating novel, complex, specified information. Natural Darwinian mechanisms can shuffle this information around, but only intelligence can generate novel, specified complexity. That is staggering evidence that there is an intelligence behind the genetic code. It's like seeing the fingerprint of God. It's like that's what science has done. When we see the red shift and when we see DNA, we are seeing the fingerprints of the creator in the universe. This is astounding. Now, I want to give you a very bad objection to this argument. This is via Richard Dawkins, who claims that you cannot infer design. Uh, you cannot infer a designer of the universe based on the complexity of the universe. Why? Because he says you will always have to ask the question, who designed the designer? Now think for that. Think about that for a minute. He says this, this was his main thesis, I believe, in his book called The God Delusion. He said, you will always have to ask the question, who designed the designer? And that's why you can't infer design of the universe. Now, besides having proof that the universe requires a timeless explanation for its existence, this is just logically incorrect. You do not need to exhaustively explain the designer before you can infer design. So say you're walking along the, the beach there and you come across this piece of rock. You don't know where it came from. You don't know who's behind it. Now according to Dawkins' logic, since you don't know who designed the designer, you cannot infer design. That is a fantastic argument in my mind. I think we are very well justified to infer that there was a designer behind this arrowhead. I think you are logically justified in doing so. So, if you agree with me that you don't need an exhaustive explanation behind who designed this, but you're justified in inferring a designer, then you are also justified in inferring a designer of the universe, even if you didn't have an exhaustive explanation of it. 
you can still infer design. So that's, as I see, a bad argument in my mind. So, three arguments. And there's, I would love to share with you more, and I would love to get deeper into these things with you. Um, but I just wanted to take one sermon and give you the science and philosophy behind the existence of God. So you might say, okay, the universe cannot come into existence uncaused out of nothing. You got me there, Pastor. And you say, you know, all right, there must be a cause. And I also see that the universe had a beginning and therefore it must have had a cause. And I see that life, it probably must be explained by intelligence. I, I see all that. But my question is this, if God wants me to believe, if God wants people to believe that he exists, why doesn't he make it more obvious to us? And maybe you have an honest question about that today. I believe the biblical answer is that God is not interested in whether you believe that he exists. It is a matter of indifference to God whether you believe that he exists. Even the demons believe that God exists. And they tremble. What God is after is worship. And if that end will not be achieved by a man, God will not reveal himself to that man. Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So, I believe God doesn't care whether people believe that He exists. He wants people to worship. And when we see the majesty of the universe, the design in the universe, the complexity of the universe, this should drive us not to mere assent, but to worship the Creator. I believe that logic can bring you to the truth. It can bring you to touch the truth, but it cannot contain the truth. What you need to contain the truth is both logic and worship. That's what God is after. <coughs> Let me end with this. In his marvelous book, Till We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis's main character, comes to a point where she rails against the chief god in the whole book. She hates the chief god, she denies his existence, but finally, at the very end of her life, she is brought to an acknowledgement that this chief God, it does exist. And she says a beautiful line at the end. She says, Now I know why you don't give man an answer. Because you yourself are the answer. That's, that is what God is after. That kind of acknowledgement. And right after that, she dies. Almost as if to say, 
Lewis is almost saying that her whole life God was working to bring her to this worshipful acknowledgement. The reason God doesn't give man an answer is because he is the answer. Not just the logic behind it. So, why do we believe in a creator? Because nature, and also conscience, testifies to the existence of a majestic, glorious, awesome, powerful, awful, holy God. That's why we believe in a creator. Next week, <coughs> we will talk about why we believe God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer.